It was a Rose Bowl for the ages. Clemson and Alabama are going to play again in the national championship game. And Lane Kiffin does what Lane Kiffin does best. All coming up on the Audible. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is the morning of January 3rd. On January 2nd, USC and Penn State played a game that I'm curious to hear my colleague's opinion since he was there. That was the best ball game I've watched in person or on TV, I think, since at least Boise State, Oklahoma 10 years ago. Wow, Stu. That is, I didn't know how far back you were going to go. I sat next to Pat Forty, and near him was Chris Dufresne. And so those guys are, are my senior. Um, Chris has certainly seen more Rose Bowls than I have because he grew up in L.A. and works for the Times. But I've seen a lot of Rose Bowls, um, too. I've probably seen 15, maybe, uh, that I've covered. And so people were like, this is the best Rose Bowl you've seen since when? And I was like, well, I had to think about it. And I was like, well, certainly the best game I've ever covered, hands down, was the Texas-USC game. And it was a Rose Bowl game. But the first Rose Bowl game I saw in person was was a great game, too. And that was the Jake Plummer, Arizona State, Ohio State game. And that was really – that was one of the best games I've covered. This would rank up there, too, though, because of all the big plays and the back and forth where you had Penn State go down 13 to nothing and feel like they probably should, were lucky they weren't down 24 to nothing. And then at one point – and our buddy Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, we were riding together. And at like, you know, whatever it was, one in the morning or midnight last night, he said, Do you think there's ever been a game where one team has scored four touchdowns on four successive plays? And I said, you know, I don't know. I, it didn't, I knew that, that uh, at one point Penn State had had seven straight touchdown drives and had three of them at the start of the third quarter all were one play drives. What I had forgotten was they had actually scored on their last play in the, in the second half, second quarter too. So it was pretty remarkable. And I just think, you know, considering the, the subplots of each team where everybody wrote off USC after they started one and three and, and people never, never thought much of Penn state, even though they won the, the big 10 title. And, um, it was, it was a great night, even though it lasted four hours and 12 minutes, it was, uh, it was fun, all basically all, whatever it is, 252 minutes of that. That was a long game, but it was an epic game. And something, there's something about the Rose Bowl that brings out the best in teams and players. You don't, off the top of my head, I can't think of a lot of examples of a team doing what Ohio State did the other night at my game and just going belly up. And what we saw for 60 minutes was Sam Darnold and Trace McSorley and Juju Smith-Schuster and all these just playing so well. In fact, I was thinking about this. You know, we've talked about during the season, right? You covered a lot of 52-49 type games in the Big 12 where you came away from it just kind of like, ah, the defenses weren't very good. That didn't feel that way to me. I mean, obviously they weren't great, but Sam Darnold in particular, who what a what a coming out party for him if you hadn't had it already – made some throws that nobody I'm not sure (laughs) name the best secondary in the country I don't think they could have defended since most notably his last touchdown pass where Kirk Herbstreet was breaking down the replay going I just this is absurd I don't know how he did this well what's interesting to me is I've seen Sam Darnold a few times in person and you know I've heard from a lot of coaches covering the Pac-12 that they think he is as talented a quarterback prospect as they've seen in years uh, and the thing that makes him even more intriguing than Josh Rosen is his ability uh, to extend plays. Rosen's a pretty good athlete. Sam Darnold's a terrific athlete, and you see it time and time again. But what what was interesting is there were a lot of people at USC that said this was not anywhere near his best game. He was a little off at times. You know, he he was. Looked like he was he was jittery in the beginning of the game where he threw some bad balls. And then there was other times he was a little off. So it wasn't like his best game. But, man, I think he completed his last 10 passes in a row. And, and you know, he's going to go down as a great one. You, you can just see it coming. And I don't know how long USC is going to have him because he could leave after next year. But uh, I think we saw two guys 
in Saquon Barkley and Sam Darnold who are going to be strong Heisman candidates next year. This was definitely the kind of game that, that causes all sorts of hype leading into next season. I, uh, I want to pay you a compliment. Your story from the game captured it perfectly, I thought. And, and really the theme of your column was exactly how I felt, which is because of the McCaffrey and, and Fournette, we've, had, we've been subject to all of this bowl games are meaningless crap for the last few weeks. And, and even on Twitter, uh, although I probably shouldn't pay so much attention to it uh, on, on, the, on the second. I keep wanting to say New Year's Day. And, you know, now I go back, and you do too, to when there was no national championship game and there was no bigger bowl game to get to, to the, than the Rose Bowl. But even more recently, I covered when TCU beat Wisconsin and mm-hmm. to complete a perfect season, and there were grown men weeping on the field. Uh, you remember Stanford when they first won a – like it felt like Stanford was already established again after Harbaugh. But I remember being at the Rose Bowl. I'm not sure if you were at that game where part of me was like okay, – This was the guys, first the first win of the of their yeah, recent run? Yeah. I mean I remember hit David Shaw's father and David Shaw embracing his father whose dream you know, as a Pac-12 assistant was to coach in the Rose Bowl uh, and win a Rose Bowl. I mean that was an emotional, emotional moment. Yeah, and I was surprised it was, you know, again, because we we had seen that team. They had won BCS Bowls before. I think they I think the first one was Harbaugh beating Virginia Tech on uh, the Orange Bowl maybe. And so we had seen it. I was just like, wow, this is a big deal. Now, at one point, one of the guys who turned out to be one of the heroes for USC, Leon McQuay, who had dropped the interception on one play where she thought he could have taken it maybe back or at least. And then almost the very next thing, he, he does that and sets up the game-winning field goal. Uh, you know, I was kind of going for this column and asking about not necessarily everything's been meaningless or people say it's meaningless. You know, what is, what do you say to them who, after being part of this? And he was like, he was basically looking like, it's the Rose Bowl, you idiot. This is a big deal. <laughs> I mean, he didn't call me an idiot, but you yeah. can see, like, it's the Rose Bowl. You don't get it, man. And there was, there was something very cool about that. I mean, just. It's, you know, first of all, by the way, this might be the first time you've ever complimented me on anything I've ever written for Fox. Oh, uh, that can't possibly be true. I think it's true because I keep notes on these things. Okay. Too, believe, bro. Um, second. It's going to be my New Year's resolution is going to be to give you more feedback. Thank you. Well, not feedback, but that's a compliment. I don't know <laughs> feedback. Feedback could be you suck. Um, so the, uh, you know, the thing I couldn't do a good enough job of is – seeing, you know, just reflecting how much their emotion was pouring out of USC people who were sobbing on the field um, after this game and the looks of Penn State players. I mean, we were all come, you know, go on the field in the last few, you know, after the last few minutes and see the reaction. And Penn State guys, most of them were just stuck in place on the sideline in disbelief while the USC guys were crying like they just won the national title. Well, um, Rose Bowl or not, I cannot imagine what it's like to be on the losing end of a, of a game like that where it was back and forth, back and forth. And am I remembering this right? That was the only time they trailed, right, at the end? No, because they trailed at the start of the game 13-0. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I meant during the second half. Uh, yeah, because Penn State got on that roll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they thought they had the game won, you know. Until two minutes left, USC has to go 80 yards to tie. They do that pretty quickly. And then, unfortunately, because I thought McSorley had a lot of great moments over the course of the game, but the two interceptions at the beginning and the one at the end obviously kind of doomed them. Um, you know, with the Rose Bowl, I always say, and I know this is not practical, it, you know, we have the good fortune to be in jobs where they pay us to go to these games. If you've never been... You can't truly appreciate what it's all about. I mean, it's unlike any other venue. It's unlike any other game. It's to me when when it's when it's a good matchup. When it's uh, certainly when it's Big Ten, Pac twelve, which is kind of what it's meant to be. Um, and it's sold out, and the colors are split. It's to me more electric than than the playoff games, certainly. Um, and I also think you know it makes a difference where the team is coming from. I mean, by the end of the Pete Carroll run, I mean, the last thing about it, the last time USC and Penn State played, USC had been to the Rose Bowl four straight years, and I think it was kind of old hat to them. And I don't it think was. they particularly it cared. It was stale for those players because yeah. you got to remember a lot of the times for, for bowl games, they go through the same functions, they practice at the same place. 
They see the same faces. I mean, it really had gotten stale to them at that point. I remember going out. I think they were practicing or doing something at the Home Depot Center in uh, Carson, which is about you know twenty minutes from there. And they just it just seemed like it was it was bland to them by then. Whereas this group, it felt fresh, and there was a, just they'd been through a lot more with all the coaching. Well, changes. yeah, since last time they're in the Rose Bowl, massive sanctions. Numerous coaching changes, and of course, same for Penn State. So, it just meant like that SEC slogan. It just meant more. Uh, where are you? And obviously, this would have this would have ratcheted up so much more if Penn State had pulled it out. But where are you on the? Uh, this shows that Penn State should have been in there instead of Ohio State. I don't know. I mean, I I think Penn State, even though they lost, continued to show that they are better than, you know, most people gave them credit for. You know, I I think they are a really fun team to watch with Tracy McSorley and Saquon Barkley and Chris Godwin making all those amazing catches and Gesicki. And they only lose one senior on the offense. So I don't know. I, I, that To me, that stuff, I don't really like walking down that road because who knows? If they played Clemson, they might have lost, you know, 28 to nothing. Well, you know? no, I think the more – and I don't know, maybe they would have beat oh, Clemson. Yeah, it would have been Washington, right? No, I'm saying, okay, so Ohio State lost 31 nothing. How do you know? Clearly Penn State's offense is, by the end of the year, much, much better than Ohio State's. But how do you know they wouldn't have lost 62-35? to I mean, you just you can't predict these things. And it's not – I understand. It was inevitable people were going to go there because a lot of people thought that should have been the way it was in the first place. But it's not the committee's job to predict how they, predict the outcome of the games. You know, I got a lot of, and I got this last year too. If they're blowouts, then the committee must have done something wrong. Uh, all they're doing is picking the teams based on what they achieved to that point in the season. You know, drives me crazy in the NCAA tournament too. Uh, somebody uh, gave me this analogy on Twitter, and I agree. Syracuse last year in the NCAA tournament was like 70th in RPI. They're one of the last teams in. A lot of people didn't think they should be in, and then they went to the Final Four. That doesn't mean the committee got it right. That means Syracuse got hot at the right time and went to the Final Four. So. I'm not buying that story. I'm sure if Penn State had won, that's all anybody would be talking about. Yeah, uh, same here. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm jumping the gun on your on your producing skills here, but you did a story on uh, the ACC and and how we sort out the bowls. I mean, I added something a stat I looked up where the of the Power Five schools, the conference that has allowed the least amount of points in these bowls is Big 12, which is interesting because the Big 12, everyone rips on the Big 12 defenses. And it's been the ones it's been the one that's really shined, whereas, you know, the other ones haven't, you know, the ACC has been close to that. But um, what do you make of all this as, as what the past month has, has shown us or revealed? I think it's been the greatest month and the greatest season in the history of ACC football. Uh, this is a conference that will you be able to say that though if Clemson doesn't close you know seal yeah the, so seal. that's a good question I will I will maintain that based on all the things I wrote in my column about you know uh, they had the best uh, they were let me pull up the stats here well here here's a really simple one we'd all agree the SEC's been the standard bearer in college football for about ten years right. Mm-hmm. Between the regular season and the bowls, the ACC went nine and four against the SEC. Uh, they had the best bowl record at eight and three to the SEC six and six, and they had the best, they were, the most wins against Power Five opponents in non-conference play. You put all that together, and to me, it seems pretty obvious that was the best conference in college football this year. If Alabama beats Clemson, it means Alabama was the best team in college football this year. Yes. I think you have put it up succinctly. Very, very well said. Glad we could do that. So let's talk about <laughs> Alabama Clemson. Let's go back to last week. It seems like a million years ago now to the semifinal games we were at. Um, I'm not sure I've ever predicted anything worse in my life than my prediction for the Fiesta Bowl. What was your score prediction? I don't want to say. Come on. People will look it up anyway. Uh, well, let's just put it this way. I was off by 49 points on Ohio so, State. So you picked... Ohio State's win by 18. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Wait, how did you know the, the Clemson score? Because, look, I may have gone to junior college and taken six years to graduate, Stu, but I know enough about 31 plus, eight, plus 18. No, I mean, you. I don't understand. You knew that I picked Clemson to score 31, but you couldn't remember the Ohio no, State. I th- no, I, I assumed you meant... 
Clemson won by 31. You said 49. You were off by 49 points. Oh, you're right. You did some sleuth math on me right there. I'm no, the idiot. Stu, I think our listeners are going to go go back to my original point from about a year ago going, how did Stu get into Northwestern after all? I did not do math. <laughs> math was not my strong suit. Um, you know, I took a bet. I took a gamble on Urban Meyer. I thought he was going to get his offense figured out during those four weeks, and he, absolutely he did not in any way. It got worse. Give Clemson a lot of credit. Uh, that defensive line, and we've been talking about it, I feel like, since last year's championship game, just dominated Every, from beginning to end, dominated Ohio State's offensive line. I thought it was odd that Ohio State came out and basically never even tried to just set up a conventional running game. Uh, Mike Weber did get a carry in the first quarter. It was all, let's try to go side to side. And Clemson so fast, they snuffed that out. And I think it just kind of derailed from there. It didn't seem like they knew what they wanted to do. And I got to give Deshaun Watson a lot of credit. He throws two picks early. We've been giving him flack about, or at least I have been giving him flack about the picks all year. But in talking to uh, Tony Elliott, their Mm -hmm. offensive coordinator during the week, because people would bring up, you know, just like I had, Ohio State, they have all these picks, they return all these pick sixes. You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle that? And Malik Hooker did have a a great pick in the game. Their philosophy is we've got all these great receivers, Mike Williams, Tavis Scott, uh, Deion Kane, Hunter Renfro, right on down the list. We're going to take our shots. You may pick off a couple, but we're going to win more than we lose. And that's what they do. Yeah, you know, it reminds me a little bit. You know, I did a couple of Oklahoma State games. And they have a, they have a good quarterback and good receivers, you know, Mason Rudolph and those guys. And you talk to teams who've played them, other coordinators, and they're like, they're going to take their shots on 50-50 balls. And they know they're going to probably beat you more than you're going to get on them. And I'm still thinking, well, you always hear about protect the football and turnovers. Yet, I think there's something more to it, not to get too far down the X and O's, you know, football rabbit hole here, but about the philosophy of they're going to take shots downfield and the, 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 what that does for, to a defense in terms of not just stretching a defense, but mentally what it does to them. And clearly that philosophy is working at Clemson. If, if you were a Heisman vote, if the Heisman was held now, uh, would you be voting Deshaun Watson number one or Lamar Jackson number one? Come on. <laughs> what do you think? Just, just <laughs> Lamar Jackson had the worst end. It, it's like almost like the first nine the games never Ezekiel happened. Elliott, basically. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, he did nothing in, in the, you know, I thought he'd have trouble against that LSU defense, but he did absolutely nothing. Yes, Deshaun, yeah, if you're, and we've talked about it before. Yet another reason why they should push the uh, Heisman back. Yes, Deshaun Deshaun Watson might have two Heismans if they had pushed this thing back, although I kind of think McCaffrey would have won last year. Um, hey, on, uh, before we leave Ohio State, this dawned on me when, you know, you were in the middle of, you were reporting on the game, and, you know, I follow you and Pete Thamel and a bunch of other guys who are covering the game, and I saw people, you know, tweeting JT Barrett's comments. He's coming back. He has, like, you know, he doesn't want to leave on that note, whatever it was. And the reaction was kind of the same thing I had in the back of my head. I was like, wait, where would he go? Yeah. You know, unless he was go to, you know, to Texas to go reunite with Tom Herman. Yeah, I'll be Um, honest. I thought, so I was in the press, Ohio State press conference because, you know, the Clemson with the celebration, it takes so long that you might as well go in there. And it was Urban Meyer, uh, JT Barrett, and Chris Worley. And it was a whole bunch of one sentence answers. The question, yeah, was have you decided whether you're coming back? I thought he mentioned, you know, you got your degree. I thought that's what he was asking, That, uh, and I don't remember who asked it. I thought he was basically insinuating, like, have you decided whether you're going to become a grad transfer or not? But then uh, our friend Pete Thamel wrote the next day about what his decision to whether or not to enter the NFL draft. He can't enter the NFL draft. Nobody would draft right. him. So, yeah, I, I would assume he'd be back. And, um, you know, this has already happened. The news came out this morning about Tim Beck leaving for Texas and Ohio State bringing in Ryan Day. But you knew – at that press conference, like Urban was was very curt, and he was texting under the table. And I said to somebody, "I wonder if he's texting his new quarterback coach," because it was clear, like that's where this is headed. It's very uh, puzzling the regression of JT Barrett. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think I fully realized how bad it had gotten, obviously, until that game. But their quarterback play just got worse and worse over the last two years, and Urban Meyer's not going to settle for that. So the change is already made. There may be more changes to come. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I know Ryan Day pretty well. I've known him for a while. I think he's a good fit because 
He was a good OC for Boston College. Remember, Andre Williams actually became a Heisman finalist there, which is kind of unthinkable to see how you know bad BC's offense has been. Uh, did a really nice job with Sam Bradford last year when he was at uh, when he was at the Eagles, and you know did well at Temple with their offense. Now, obviously, this year it was a debacle in San Francisco, but he's a Chip Kelly disciple. He'd been a graduate assistant under Urban Meyer. Um, no, I think this is a, a big. I think this is an upgrade for for Ohio State at this point. We'll see what else, what other additions Urban Meyer may make to his staff. So uh, that day, the day of the game, was also when the news came out that Chip Kelly was being fired from the Forty ers and of course, I tweeted, "2017 Ohio State OC Chip Kelly?" Question mark. You spoke with Chip Kelly not too long ago. Is that a remote possibility? To go where, Stu? To go be Urban Meyer's new OC. I don't know about that. I mean, with I, his boy Ryan Day, and he, you know, look, he likes Billy Davis, who was his old defense coordinator in Philly, who is now the co DC under with Urban Meyer. He likes Urban Meyer. Um, he told me he's open to all possibilities, you know, and that includes college. Um, you know, at this point, I think he's going to sit and see what's out there. You know, one of the things that was interesting that we talked about um, this morning was the timing, how it played out for him, you know, when people were like, well, what about this job or what about that job? And he was pretty adamant to me about, you know what, I'm not, the thing he believes in more than anything is I will never leave my team when there are games left in the season. And so with college, those jobs are filled by the time the NFL season, you know, ends. And so he said, you know, how could you leave? How could you ask your players to be all in and then leave when you and you get a better deal? So that's kind of what, what how the time, timing played in. And and he ended up in San Francisco. It was not a good situation in terms of the personnel there. I don't know. You know, earlier in this week, I heard from somebody who I trust who's a pretty good source who had said, don't be shocked if there was some movement uh, in college football. With somebody looking going, hey, can we get can we land Chip Kelly? So and there was a school on the West Coast that was that was uh, mentioned to me, but I'm not sure because that school would owe this coach a bunch of money. So I don't uh, you know, the coach has a bunch of money. So I don't know if that would happen. I mean, I think the more realistic scenario is that he sits it out and becomes a head coach next season. He told our our Jay Glazer, though, that he's going to go be an offensive coordinator somewhere. Whether that's in the I assume he meant in the NFL, but it could be in college. Um, what about the idea of him joining you and your pal Dave Wanstead at Fox? Uh, why not? You know, spend a year doing TV and then go back into coaching. Sure. I don't think so. I, I think he's going to be uh, on the sideline somewhere next season. I, I know that seems far fetched that he would go back and be, uh, but he and Urban are tight. So if Urban real and Urban has another former NFL coach as his defensive coordinator. So, and that, you know, and again, that's well, both, well, Greg Shiano is one of them. The other one, Billy Davis, though, was, was Chip's defensive coordinator in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that's worth keeping in mind too, uh, Chip lost his dad a few weeks back. Even though he was older, he was in he had been in good health, and it was kind of a real jolt and shock that he had passed away pretty suddenly. Suddenly, so I don't know if he's gonna, you know, part of him may look and go, you know what, I'm gonna sort out things this year and then see what my options are next year. So, in general, with Ohio State, it'll be interesting to see what happens because um, it's one of those things where they'll probably start out lower in the preseason than they would have if that game had been 27-24. But, you know, just like Penn State has everybody coming back on offense, Ohio State has everybody coming back on offense. The difference being, of course, Penn State ended the season on fire. So... One thing that I think, you know, there was kind of a backlash to those tweets and comments about, like, why would he go to, you know, who's he kidding about going to the NFL? Nobody's, you know, he'll, he may never play in the NFL kind of thing. Um, was because he was a Heisman, you know, he finished fifth in the Heisman as a freshman, redshirt freshman, and has had this career basically on a big stage since then because they, they win a national title. He gets hurt. Uh, there's the Cardell Jones back and forth. And this year, you know, he gets called out basically by one of the Clemson defensive backs who's proven to be pretty accurate. I mean, that, you know, he probably wasn't the best passer they had seen and he, he really struggled and they looked bad in the in the game. You know, I, I feel for JT Barrett in this regard, uh, you know, they're not pro they're not pro players, 
And I suspect there's going to be a lot of like, I don't know if vitriol is the right word, but people kind of like really taking shots at his, at him and his, his skills. Um, I can, I can kind of see that coming when you have a, a real clunker of a performance like that. And people are already kind of saying, well, he's not the passer. this, you know, am I, am I reading too much into it? He's already getting the criticism. You mean from Ohio state fans from, no, from- I think from, from, it'll be from the media. It'll be from a lot of other places where I think people are going to make it out like, you know, kind of the same stuff like you would see about Tim Tebow in the NFL circles oh. out that I feel like you're going to get some of that mounting as we get into this. Well, he's got a new QB coach, and we'll see what kind of work he can do next year. You know, he, this isn't uh, happening in a vacuum. Ohio State didn't have any receivers step up this season. We talked about that last week. And in that uh, game the other night, and also against Michigan and Penn State, two of the, I mean, the two best teams they played, they couldn't protect him. A lot mm-hmm. of sacks. So, I mean, you know what it's like, actually. It's like Christian Hackenberg. So much promise the first season and then regress, regress. Of course, the difference is Ohio State's a much better team. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see if he can rebound next year. The other thing I'd say about JT Barrett in, in just being around him is he's pretty hard on himself. Um, and so I feel bad. I, I think he's a guy who takes this stuff really hard. And I... You know, the, the comment the other night was, when they asked him that question, was, well, I can't see leaving after a 31 nothing loss. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to be a long offseason for him, basically, and it will be interesting to see maybe how they try to get his confidence back. I can't believe we've gone this far into the podcast without mentioning Lane Kiffin. Okay, let's get to it. I mean, leave it to Lane Kiffin to, to steal the spotlight from right out from under the Cotton Bowl. Other than the four-hour Rose Bowl on... Uh, yesterday he was the story in college football and i thought i was so clever using this line and then everybody used this line leave it to lane kiffin to get fired from a job he was already leaving i also saw somebody else had tweeted no nfl coaches got fired on black monday but lane kiffin found a way to get fired on black monday i mean this guy has now gotten fired twice in september once on an lax tarmac and now who would have thought you could lose your job the week of the national championship game? And by the way, we should clarify. So I think both of us agree this was not the quote-unquote mutual decision that it's being painted to be. Yeah, it'd be the same mutual decision that uh, I put my kids to bed at a certain time. <laughs> um, what do you think was the tipping point? I don't know if there was a specific tipping point. I don't know that there there might have been. I don't know. I mean, but you were there. You were. I, I'll tell you, you were there at the media series sessions. of things I okay. had heard uh, late last week that gave me you know reason to think like this is way worse than I had anticipated. Now, one of the things that I think was a big deal was uh, after media day, which was uh, Thursday, he had. I remember going back to my hotel and I was working on something. I saw a story on ESPN.com. Kiffin misses team bus again. And I clicked on it. And I was like, wait a minute. He missed the bus again on like on media. Obviously from our story, you know, last year he missed it after the national title game. So he misses a team bus. And I assumed that that uh, Chris Lowe, who had reported it, had just witnessed it the same way I did a year before. Um only that's not what happened. Lane missed the bus and apparently told Chris Lowe that he'd missed the bus and or texted him. And it's such a head scratching move because I, I think Alabama people I heard were very pissed off that A, you missed the bus. B, why would you go out and tell people about it? I don't know that people realize this, but just to be clear, you're saying he missed the bus and nobody would have ever known that. If not for the fact that he himself texted a reporter. Yeah, just say it. So publicity seeking. I guess on face value, yes. Um, but just, you know, what what got around, you know, in the next couple of days at the title game was there were people out of Alabama really pissed off about that. You know, one thing to miss it, it's another thing to brag about missing it, as if it's becoming a distraction. You know, there was that, there was... A feeling, you know, I had heard from somebody that he just didn't seem, he seemed like he was acting quite right. Like he was very jittery and and, and nervous and a little off um, in one of the meetings. 
So look, I mean, he was trying to wear two hats, you know, do the FAU job. And as we talked about last week, you know, he had brought, he had flown Kendall Bryles, his new offensive coordinator into Atlanta to go interview coaches there for the rest of the Owls staff. So, you know, other coaches have managed it. I mean, Nick Saban's had two different coordinators who, 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 who were in similar situations, Kirby Smart last year and Jim McElwain a few years back. Uh, Tom Herman handled both when he was at, at Ohio State before he took the Houston job. But one of the things, and I, this, this is, I, don't think, I think this is something Lane Kiffin himself would admit, one of his bigger weaknesses as, you know, in terms of as a coach is he's not the most organized guy. And I think to manage both, you know, both roles, I think you have to be very organized. And I think ultimately that probably came back to bite him and as well as some of these other kind of head scratching decisions. And, you know, kind of as somebody I talked to who knows him really well at U- from USC yesterday, pointed is like it's another example of Lane Kiffin having a hard time getting out of Lane Kiffin's own way. No question. I, mean, I think if you were to write a manual on how to do that transition, how to handle both jobs, this would be do the exact opposite of this. I mean, that was a head-scratcher when he said he was going to interview candidates in Atlanta the week of the game. I mean, I, there's a whole month in there where you can do that. Not necessarily the week of the game. And also, you can't, you can't disparage your boss while you're still on the job. And, I, you know, he thinks he's being funny when he says these things. But when you say you can't recall a happy moment during your three years there. He you said that actually remember multiple times. Remember the ass-chewings? At, at Media Day, and then he had said something similar the day before at the, the the offensive coordinator session. So the Pete Thamel story where, where he went house hunting in Boca with him. Yeah, the tone of yeah. that and that's not a reflection on Pete's writing. The tone of, you know, what he said in that I thought did not reflect well on him either. Um so and I think and I don't remember, you know, how Pete framed it or whatever, but at one point it was like, you know, how Lane Kiffin has I don't know if Pete said this or this was kind of came out of Twitter was how Lane Kiffin has different now at 41 than he was at 31. And I think when you read that piece, you wondered, I'm not sure how much different he is. You know, his, his life situation might be different in terms of, you know, he's no longer married, you know, he's divorced, he still has a kid, and he's been, you know, in different places. But the tone of it felt similar to the Lane Kiffin. I think a lot of people saw, at least the way, the way his conversation with Pete Thamel was, it, it felt very similar to the Lane Kiffin at Tennessee. In there, he said that uh, three years in, in, in Tuscaloosa is like 21 dog years. I mean, you just can't say these. When I saw that is when I actually said to you, do you think he might get rid of him before the title game? And now he's on his spin tour where he's making it seem like this was all his. To, that He took one for the team and said, uh, well, I'm not doing a great job here, so I'm just going to leave and hand it over to Sark. I, well, I don't think that's how it works. In that case, though? He's got to save face. I mean, imagine FAU. How does FAU feel about the fact that their new head coach just got fired from his last job? I don't know. I'm curious how this is going to be. I really am. All right, so let's spin it ahead. Impact on the national title game. Kind of crazy to think <laughs> that at the beginning of this football season, Sark was our colleague. He was, he was set <laughs> to be calling Big 12 games for FS1 this year. Didn't happen. Got the analyst job after the USC-Alabama game. And now he's going to end the season calling plays in the national championship game. I know he's been there all year. He must know their system. I would say that feels like a Disney movie, but it really doesn't. I mean, to go from being to be leaning on Petros as you make a transition into (laughs) one career and all of a sudden you're leaning on Nick Saban to try to win a national title. um, What a wild, strange year. And he's not I mean, what is he? 14, 15 months removed from a very public uh, exit at USC. I mean, I hope he's gotten his personal issues in order, but I don't know how, what to make of this. Um, it seems a very, very potentially disruptive thing. You know, I know he knows the system. I know he's obviously been tight with Kiffin for a long time, but I mean, hasn't uh, your first game calling plays in a long time? It's going to be in the national championship game. Yeah. Now, look, he's got a really good staff around him. I mean, one of the you know, I broached this with somebody there at Alabama, the po- the possibility of this like about a week ago. And what I was told is we have such a good locker room that we can feel like we can withstand just about anything. So so we'll see. Like I said, it's a ex- very experienced staff around him. Um, you know, I, even without this, 
I think uh, Clemson is very formidable. I mean, you saw them in person and everything like that. I'm going to ask you this part. Let's say Clemson wins. Does Lane Kiffin look better for it publicly or worse? Does you do you think people will say, you know what, Lane Kiffin was a distraction? I'm I'm not trying to take away Clemson's glory here, but just from the Alabama's perspective, or do people say, wow, Lane Kiffin without his offensive acumen, they couldn't win without him? I think he'll get the blame. You know that he that he put Saban in a and Saban's not going to get the blame for pulling the plug. Kiffin's going to get the blame for putting him in that position and and endangering their chances of winning a national championship maybe it would have happened anyway uh but you know i mean i think people still appreciate the job he did over three years you know there's no question he helped transform the alabama offense he did it with three different quarterbacks uh jalen hurts is playing as a freshman in the national championship game in large part because of kiffin's influence but in terms of this specific game yeah, I mean, I think he'll take the blame for it. But by the way, I think Clemson's got a very good chance in this, regardless of who the OC was. Um, you saw Alabama up close. Um, where where do you stand on them right now? I think their front seven is an awesome group, and I think that they are. I you know what, Bo Scarborough can't wait to see how he does against Clemson. Um, I think Deshaun Watson and Clemson is a much bigger problem than Washington is because Jake Browning just he's a good quarterback, but he's not a dangerous quarterback with his legs and there was opportunities. Um, you know, I don't think Alabama's offense is is anything special though. For people who are I, I saw people starting to, to to chatter about how this Alabama team would do against the two thousand one Miami team. And they're not even close, I think, because that Miami team you know, well, yeah, Alabama's defense is fantastic. Miami's secondary is even was better than the, uh, this Alabama group, though. I mean, my I think Alabama's probably better up front, but the secondary's not, and I don't think the offenses are comparable at all because Andre Johnson and Jeremy Shockey were. You could say OJ Howard is really good, um, and the other receivers are good. They weren't Andre Johnson though, and. Quite honestly, Ken Dorsey may not have been an NFL quarterback, but he's a really good college quarterback at that stage of his career. And Jalen Hurts is a work in progress right now. And I think we saw that as soon as he almost got picked off by Buda Baker at the start of the game, Alabama got really conservative and we're like, hey, this is what we're going to do. And we're not going to you know, really put the game in his hands. And so, yeah, I think they've got the same much the same fatal flaw that Ohio State does and the inability to throw downfield. Now, they've got a better running game. They've got a better offensive line. And a much better defense. Ohio State's got a pretty good defense. It's not this defense, but they got a pretty good defense. How many guys at Ohio State would start for Alabama's front seven? Uh, off of the top of my head. Raekwon McMillan's a really good player. He ain't better than Reuben Foster. Yeah. He, they don't. Nobody has Alabama's front seven. Alabama's front seven is, is unbelievable. Ohio State had a really good secondary um, would you agree with this? I, there's very little chance that Deshaun Watson is going to do what he did in last year's championship game. That, that Going back to that, that was like a perfect game he played to be able to do that against the Alabama defense. But I also don't think he's going to, um, that they're going to completely shut him down. You know, I think that Clemson will score some points in this game for sure. Uh, the offense is too good not to. So the question is, is Bo Scarborough and Damian Harris and those guys, is that enough on offense to win this game? Because I don't see Jalen Hurts having a big passing game against them. Are you picking a game? Are you picking this game yet? No, not yet. Are you? Yeah. I mean, look, I picked Clemson to win in the preseason and I'm sticking to it. I feel even better about it after this weekend. So <sighs> there you go, folks. There's one person who doesn't think Alabama is going to complete this thing. Um, I'm much higher on Clemson now, obviously, than I have been all season. And it's definitely tempting. But uh, a few years ago, I was the idiot who picked Notre Dame <laughs> to beat Alabama. And after that, I, I said... I think I might have, too. Yeah, I'm pretty I said, sure I did. After that, I said, I'm never picking against Alabama in a national championship game again. I'm never doubting them again. So, yeah, that'll be put to the test when we do make our picks for this game. Uh you know, it'll be it'll be interesting. Uh, I, I think, you know, it was clear in talking to the Clemson players right after the game, and I don't know how people feel about this, but you know, they went right to we want our revenge, we want our redemption. Cordrea Tankersley, time for a new sheriff in town. Ben Bulware, who's always the most quotable person on Clemson, 
uh, was the we want revenge, we want redemption guy. Uh, we've been thinking about this game for a year. And, you know, that's great. That makes for great uh, copy. But Alabama strikes me as a team that is more like, who are we playing this week? Clemson? Oh, yeah, we played them last year. Great. Let's get to work. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're just very impressive in how they go about their business, um, which is why the lane thing is such a, such a curveball to what everything Alabama seems to be about. And I say this with a lot of respect from, you know, being around those players a couple of times. And granted, they're only, you know, it's not like I'm living with them. You're just in, you know, relatively tight media windows. But they're impressive in how they handle it. And it's not just the older guys. Um, you know, I mean, I go back to Jonah Williams is a true freshman who seems to be more mature than, you know, some people I work with, but uh, it's not used to. Um, but it's very, very impressive how it kind of all comes together and filters down from, from Saban and, and all the stuff they invest in it. Um, hey, I wanted to ask you this. I was at the Rose Bowl, obviously, and was writing and didn't have a chance to watch much of the, the uh, Sugar Bowl. I caught the last quarter, but I saw Brent Musburger was trending and for the Joe Mixon comments. And I thought that uh, is interesting to me as somebody who, who works on games as an announcer as well. Um, what do you feel about like the balance? I mean, you're obviously in the media, but you're a college football fan about the balance between when you have these off field issues, but also how they should be handled by other schools and our announcers. We knew this Joe Mixon situation would be very awkward for this game because of the tape finally coming out. You can't not mention it. They had to address it. I thought um, I thought uh, the, the ESPN crew that did the Holiday Bowl did a great job of just right off the top of the broadcast. This is what happened with the Minnesota sexual assault case. Here's why, you know, they went into it in, in as much detail as you could in a short amount of time, and nobody would say, oh, they're going soft on them. Um Brent Musburger, who in general we both love but did not have his finest moment in the Sugar Bowl, his mistake was editorializing. So it's one thing to say, okay, you know, if you're watching this game at home and you're not familiar, uh, two and a half years ago, Joe Mixon was arrested. He punched a woman, broke her jaw, was suspended for a year, came back, and the tape came out. You know, state the facts. He editorialized. He said he went over the top and said he got a second chance and this young man, I'm pulling for him. I hope he makes the best of his second chance in the NFL. And that's what really turned people off. You know, not that I'm wishing him ill will in the NFL by any means, but that's just not that it doesn't seem like that's the right moment for it. How about wishing his victim well in her career? She just got her degree. She's starting her career. Where is she in all that? That's where he went wrong. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, he doubled down. Clearly, somebody in the booth said, uh, you know, you're catching a lot of flack for this on Twitter. Do you want to clarify your comments? And you could tell he was a bit indignant about it. So he said, you know, look, what he did was terrible. It was brutal. Da, 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 da. But and then he repeated the second chance. Hope he has a great life comment. So I would say that's not the way to handle it. But you I mean, you did that. You were part of an Oklahoma game where you had to report on Joe Mixon. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, and this was this was something we had talked about beforehand. It was before the Texas Tech game, uh, and it was very—I don't want to say it was very well thought out, but it was thought out in terms of we just we had a discussion about it in our meeting. We agreed how it would be. I wrote something up that was rather lengthy, meaning it wasn't something I could I could, uh, could speak on in between one play. It had to go over a, a couple of plays. Um, and, you know, our, our play-by-play guy, Joe Davis, you know, kind of buttoned it up with, with advancing about the news. There really wasn't, you know, editorializing in it. It was explaining, here's what it is. You know, and one of the lines in there was, for a lot of people, this, in, this incident defines Joe Mixon. And it was also, there was included some comments from Bob Stoops that he had to us where he talked about Mixon. But I think the area that is that is challenging for TV game announcers is that your interaction is with whether it was with Joe Mixon and I've never talked to Joe Mixon. He was never made available to us, but you do talk to Bob Stoops and perhaps Brent did get introduced to Joe Mixon. I don't know that. So you're around some of the coaches and people who know Joe Mixon. They're not around, you know, the victim of Joe Mixon or in other cases, the victim of, you know, somebody else. If they, if it's another player who has had some horrific behavior. So, 
they don't have that context. And I think it's something that, you know, either you need to be mindful of that going into the game and remember exactly what, and, you know, I kind of caught up on the story late last night as I was kind of, you know, done with my, my story and watching the game and saw some of the tweets from other people in the media who had really taken issue with what Brent said in real time. And, you know, I think this is, I think we're in a different era of what you say. And I mean, look, neither one of us covers the NFL, but Tyreek Hill has had a big rookie season for the Kansas City Chiefs. But he's also has some really, you know, disturbing incidents with violence against women in his past. And almost any time he does something on the field, you see that you see the blowback from it. We should also mention that during the game, shortly before halftime, when you could hear on TV, uh, first that the Auburn fans were booing him, but then actually were chanting, he hits women, that he and Baker Mayfield started raising their arms like, come on, bring it on, louder. (sighs) The Joe Mixon era at Oklahoma can't end soon enough. I guess it probably is ending now. Uh, He hasn't announced anything. It's just so it's just so awkward. You know, he had a great game against Auburn, and, and all anybody's talking about is the Brent Musburger comments. Yeah, you're right. I think the sooner he has moved on, I think, for them at Oklahoma, it's just like, just kind of hung over this program. As opposed to the Tyreek Hill situation where Mike Gundy kicked him off immediately. So I don't think when Tyreek Hill has his success in, with the Chiefs, I could be wrong. You tell me. You watch more NFL than me. People don't, like throw it back at Oklahoma State because as soon as it happened, he was gone. Yeah, uh, I think the NFL is different, Stu. You take a look at a case like Michael Floyd, you know, former Notre Dame star receiver who's had serious bouts with alcohol issues and recently got like a DUI to the level of intoxication that was like, sounded like it was something that was made up. It was like he got a super intoxicated charge or something and the Patriots scooped him right up. People don't care in the NFL. They really don't. I mean, if they did, the NFL product would be suffering by now. Yeah, look, uh, there's a coach I know used to coach in college and then spent like seven or eight years in the NFL. And he told me, uh, he said, you know what? If one of my players gets in trouble, he goes, it's not my, you know, it's basically it's not my problem. He goes, that guy has an agent and he can hire a lawyer. And those people are going to know a lot better to tell him what to do than I will. Now, if it's in college, it's a different story. Right. All right, well, big week, Bruce. You and I will finally be in the same place, Tampa. What are you looking forward to most about this trip? I am most looking forward to seeing Clemson's Dexter Lawrence go up against Bo Scarborough and just see that kind of collision. Yeah, you know what? I uh, I spent some time around. He's who I immediately went to at Clemson Media Day. and Because you heard he was a really good quoter just because you wanted no, to No, I'm fascinated story. by him. He's 6'5", 342, and you go up to him. And he's like, if there's such a thing as a skinny 342-pound person, it's him. He's so lean. Uh, nice guy, just a freak. Now, in the game the other night, he actually did not show up on the stat sheet. Whether, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything for a defensive lineman. It was actually, you know, they have three of their four defensive linemen got some sort of either All-American or, in his case, freshman All-American honors. It was the fourth one. Clellan Farrell had the huge game the other night. But, uh, he had like three tackles for loss. Yeah, he was everywhere. Um I agree. I think that's a great angle. Um, I'm fascinated by the mess that is going to be Alabama Media Day. I know that's going to that's a game changer for that. Sark has not given an interview since he was fired by USC, and now he's going to be, you know, all the coaches talk. So he's the OC. It's going to be. I hope they put him. I kind of hope they put him at a podium because otherwise it's going to be an absolute mess. He's going to face questions about this change the game but he's also going to get a whole bunch of what happened at usc what did you do how did you have you turned your life around i mean it's going to be it's going to be there's going to be a lot packed into an hour there and but on top beyond the football uh you know we get so used to over the years going through the four city circuit right of uh phoenix pasadena new orleans miami this is uh this is kind of cool that they're doing it in a different city in a city that i've been to once in my life tampa I'm interested to see what Tampa has to offer, what Tampa's all about. and um, Oh, you know what Tampa's all about, Sue. Come on. What's Tampa all about? Well, as Is, is friend, that what you were immaturely giggling about before? <laughs> as our friend Brett McMurphy, Tampa native, says, it's the strip club capital of the United States. Yeah, I had a feeling that's where you were going. Yeah, just kidding. Um, just kidding. 
Towards that end, though, you know who's going to be covering this game this uh, this year? Your friend Arash Markazi from ESPN. <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just connected strip clubs to Arash Markazi. Oh, come on. Everybody has Google. So No, I'm just kidding. Let's go. Arash knows how to party. Uh, that's great. I look forward to seeing him. You know, one of the best things about the national championship is everybody's in one place, really, for the only time all year. I mean, usually... You see a lot of people at like SEC Media Days, but people are splintered out around the country. Semis, we were um, we were split in half, and, and there was a very interesting dichotomy actually on the th- night of the thirtieth. Uh, those of us at the Fiesta Bowl went to kind of a clubby place in Old Town Scottsdale to watch the uh, Michigan Florida State game. We did not realize we were going to a clubby place. We thought we were going to just a regular old sports bar. So that was our scene. And while we're there. We're seeing tweets and Snapchats and Instagrams of this epic cookie baking contest that's going on at Dan Wilkins' house in Atlanta that you and all of the Peach Bowl media were at. Um, I'm going to guess you wanted to trade places. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I liked all our friends there and everything, but just the idea that at one point I was, anybody else want to see the UFC fight? And <laughs> it was so like, I was like, people were looking at me like I was like, you know, ask them if I wanted to bring like a live wild animal into the house. So did you see it or no? I was able to see the the main event, which only lasted about 45 seconds. Yeah, you'll be proud of me. I mean, it was on at the, the sports bar, like, but I didn't know any of those people were that were the men that were fighting. I just knew Ronda Rousey was the main event. And when I got back to the hotel and I saw actually a Rosh saying she's she's coming in, it's about to start. Fire up Periscope it takes you like third. I don't know how the UFC uh, stays in business considering how easy it is to just watch their pay-per-view events on Periscope. Yeah. I watched Ronda Rousey get her butt kicked. Actually, that's not even the right way to put it. Get her face kicked in. She got pummeled. Yeah. It? By the way, good column from, from our friend Dan Wetzel on that afterwards that I thought uh, kind of encapsulized why she was a lot more than just people said, oh, it was just a bunch of hype and she was a fraud and this and that. And if you want to read a really good column about it, if you're a UFC fan, if you haven't, check it out. I've moved on. Okay. <laughs> well, because we're going to be in Tampa together, we're going to hold off doing the second podcast this week until we're in person on Friday in Tampa. You'll have that to, uh, you know, you'll get a chance to listen to that over the weekend or on Monday leading up to the championship game. We haven't answered your emails in, I feel like, a few weeks. So we will do that. Send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, subscribe to The Audible on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. <laughs>